We are back. It is season three, episode seven of Lucas Baseball. Lou Landers here, joined by Lucas Beery. You can listen to our show anytime on demand at our affiliate over at Baseball365 on Facebook. You can find all our shows there and other great baseball discussions. And of course, the Baseball365 podcast. Check out our partners at iLogic Media, Drought for Upside Fantasy Sports Blueprint, and of course, Sports Crew Radio Network via iTunes or Spotify. We have a brand new Lucas Baseball Podcast Facebook page, so check that out as well. Last episode, we discussed draft and hold strategy. If you missed it, go back, take a listen. But today, going to talk about the key trades and signings from Major League Baseball over the past six to eight weeks. We're not going to get to the ball because we don't believe in going over 40, 45 minutes per show anymore, which is why this is a two-part, might even turn into a three-part episode. But Lucas, I want to start with the Mets going all in under their new ownership. They acquire Francisco Lindor and Carlos Carrasco from the Cleveland baseball team. Yeah, that was uh that was an incredible move. Had been well rumored because these teams matched up so well and it was an A plus move. Uh you consider the fact that they were able to uh, bring in a borderline ace caliber pitcher in Carrasco, as well as a franchise cornerstone in Lindor. And they moved some solid, but, you know, ultimately not indispensable middle infielders in a couple of minor leaguers. It was an A++ move for the Mets and uh, for the Indians. It uh, wasn't the best, but they'll get some they'll get some pieces out of it that'll last them for years to come. Well, what I like about it, for one, is Carrasco doesn't have to be the number one pitcher. He's really never been the number one pitcher in Cleveland. He's always number two or number three. And now he goes to a team in the Mets who have a number one starter in Jacob deGrom. And he's just kind of one of the guys in this rotation. He doesn't have to overextend himself. Uh, and a lot of people kind of wrote him off after his... Uh, unfortunate diagnosis with leukemia um he's come back and with a vengeance really he was fantastic in that shortened season um and he's really been fantastic since the start of 2014 up until um obviously had a tough year in 2019 we know why um that year occurred this is a guy that is going to get a big boost i think as well um, I think the lineup is better. I think the ballpark is better. If we're talking from a fancy baseball perspective, I definitely think it's a boost for him there as well. But then we have Francisco Lindor. I mean, this guy is a superstar type talent. He is potentially the face of this franchise now for the New York Mets. It's something they've lacked really since David Wright at this point. Um, they've definitely lacked that superstar caliber Um player on the roster obviously some good players but not necessarily elite type of players we have francisco lindor this guy uh the last three seasons of full baseball let's put it over 30 home runs over 15 stolen bases and in 18 and 19 over 30 home runs and over 20 stolen bases very dynamic ball player going to impact this match team right away Absolutely. And the best part about Lindor is that uh, even though it was only 60 game season last year, 
people are reacting to that somewhat and dropping him in drafts. And in this NFBC draft I'm taking place in right now, I was actually able to grab him at 25 overall in the second round. So the fact that you can pair him up with another player when I view him as a borderline first rounder there at the wheel, that's that's pretty nice little value, I think. Yeah, the Mets also made, uh, some people called it a bit odd or a bit of a reach, signing James McCann to a pretty hefty contract. Uh, but you know what? With catcher being what it is now, um, and by the way, that deal, I believe, what was it, four years, $40 million, uh, it's only about $10 million a year. It's really not as outlandish as some people think it is when you're trying to acquire a guy that has the potential to be a top 10 catcher offensively. Uh, I know he's not young, but the past two seasons, he's been very good. 273 batting average, 289 batting average, um, 328 on base percentage, 360 on base percentage, 25 homers over his past 150 games played. Um, that's pretty damn good for a catcher. 75 RBIs in that time, 82 runs in that time. I mean, those those are legit numbers for a catcher. Obviously, they're not real Muto numbers, Salvador Perez numbers, Wilson Contreras, or Gary Sanchez when they're right. But after that, I mean, are there is there another catcher that's done better over an 150-game stretch? I guess maybe Travis Darno. Um, but the list starts to thin out. Yeah, this was another uh, decent move. Um, some people uh, didn't agree with it, but ultimately, like you said, $10 million bucks a year for McCann. If he only gives you two good years um, and then the, the others aren't very good, I mean, he would have more than paid for himself, providing some value. Um, this is a guy that can flirt with, you know, 200 ISO, so that means his slugging percentage is very healthy. And obviously that's tough to find at catcher. So I thought it was a fine deal. Well, let's move over to the other part of the trade and the other team. Uh, the Cleveland Indians, or the Cleveland baseball team, I should say. It's going to take a while to get used to like it did with the Washington football team. Uh, by the end <laughs> of the season, I stopped calling them the Redskins. But obviously they sent away Lindor and Carrasco. They get back Amon Rosario. They get back Andres Jimenez. They get back Isaiah Green. They've also signed Eddie Rosario, but let's go piece by piece here with Ahmad Rosario. We'll start with him. Uh, after 2019, I thought he was ready to kind of break out. It was a pretty solid season for him. Nothing spectacular. Uh, 23 years old during that year, though. He had, I believe, 50-something extra base hits, 72 RBIs, uh, stole 19 bases, 15 homers. Looked like he was on the rise, career year. Then obviously last year was not so good. Um, kind of led to Jimenez getting an opportunity uh, to play more so. And he was also impressive in certain ways. You know, stole eight bags in 49 games. Hit for a decent bit of power. Had some triples. Uh, he's also, you know, a decent player. Could play all around the infield. I like it for Cleveland, but it still isn't Francisco Lindor. No, no, it's not. And, you know, obviously, whenever you're trading away a player with only one year left of service time, like they were going to Lindor and a player that obviously I think these teams can choose to afford to uh, have one mega contract. But that's just ultimately the way that Cleveland's ownership was not uh, not going to. Uh, manage the team they didn't want to have that that big contract obviously they're operating 
with a very small budget, I mean, you know, your your returns can be limited. So I thought that if you were to disinclude, if you were to take out Carlos Carrasco, I'm not saying it's a great deal for the Indians, but I think it would have been okay. Um, if you look at what Manny Machado, got it would have been better. It would have been better. Would have been better. Now, I mean, you have to like the youth that Cleveland got. I mean, yes. Jimenez is what 21, 22 years, 22 years old now, um, and Rosario's twenty four now. Those are two young players, and both have shown the ability to be above average uh, players. It certainly adds depth to a lineup that needed it. Um, what are your thoughts on Isaiah Green, though? Do you think that? helps this deal at all or do you think it's more insignificant uh with isaiah green um i thought that was an absolutely perfect uh piece to get back um well the the best the best piece they could have gotten back was an impact outfielder that would have been able to play such as a dom smith or even you know worse yet a jd davis but uh because well, that's why they signed eddie rosario who we'll talk about shortly oh yeah oh yeah and of course cleveland's Needed outfielders for about five to six years plus going on now. Um, and so, yeah, I felt like that would have been nicer to have a, a MLB bat to stick into the outfield. But uh, getting a player such as Isaiah Green, who has incredible tools, I, I felt as if that upside um, it could it could make this deal look a little bit better. But like I said, whenever you're trading a guy with only one year left, you know, you're not going to you know blow the doors off. No, you're not. And what I think is really interesting about the Eddie Rosario move, and I told you offline, uh, look at Lindor. He has played six seasons in Major League Baseball. So was Eddie Rosario. Of course, Rosario, not good defensively. He's not a shortstop. He's not going to steal the bases necessarily. But in the same time frame, home runs, 119 for Eddie Rosario. 138 for Lindor. It's not that many more. 411 RBIs compared to 388 RBIs. Again, over six seasons, we're talking about maybe two extra home runs, maybe five extra RBIs. Um, batting average, Eddie Rosario, 277. Lindor, 285. From an offensive standpoint, pure offensive runs, hits, doubles, homers, RBIs, batting average, they're pretty much the same player. And Rosario's costing the Indians $8 million. I mean, maybe I'm crazy, but I think the Cleveland Indians lineup is better now than it was before they traded Francisco Lindor. That's definitely a hot take. I, uh, I think we'll need to see. You add Rosario, you add him, and as you add other Rosario, both um, Ahmed and Eddie, the production, yeah. the production it's, it's right in front of you. I mean, Eddie Rosario's production is very, very similar to Francisco Lindor offensively. I'm not talking about the stolen bases, base running. There's no doubt about it. Lindor is faster, more mm-hmm. athletic, steal, can steal you the 20 to 25 bases. You're lucky if you get five or six at this point from Eddie Rosario. But from the power standpoint, the batting average, the important numbers, the reasons why they've brought in a guy like Eddie Rosario, that's what you're getting. And, of, of course, Lindor batted towards the top of the order, reason why he has never hit that 100 RBI mark. But Rosario has. He could hit in the middle of the lineup. I mean, it's 
Because they have a pretty deep lineup all of a sudden in Cleveland, something they haven't had in a long time. When you look around with Fran Mel Reyes, with Eddie Rosario, Jose Ramirez, um, Ahmed Rosario, Jimenez, if they can find a spot for him, um, Cesar Hernandez, Roberto Perez, Naylor looked good in his short sample size last year. Who knows if that can continue, but it's not a star-studded lineup, but it's a deep lineup. It's definitely better than I think the public perception. I think that you've you've made that you know pretty pretty well established. Kind of bringing up how just strictly with what they do with the bat, Rosario is not too incredibly different from Lindor. Obviously, doesn't bring the up the middle elite defense or the base running. Obviously, you mentioned that, but you factor in all those guys, and plus they also have uh, two. Get this. Uh, Hold on. Hold on. Speakers. This is shocking to me. Get this. Lindor. <laughs> has 15 triples in his six seasons. Do you think Eddie Rosario has more or less than that? You well, would think would less, said, right? I would have said less, but I just checked, yeah. Yeah. Now, to be fair, it's huh. because in 2015, Eddie Rosario hit 15 triples in 2015. He actually has more career triples than Francisco Lindor, of course. Over the last five years, Lindor has more, but I thought that was a fascinating uh, stat when it jumped off the page at me when when never, I saw it. Um, never would have the, expected that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, anything else on these Cleveland players? Um, one last point here on these Cleveland players. Uh, the fact that Rosario is a left-handed bat that will be able to go towards the you know, three or the four hole, uh, probably three hole after Fra- uh, right before Fran Mill and after Jose Ramirez. They do also have two more players that they can bring up in a matter of time uh, that could deliver huge impact and are going to be worth uh, watch listing in your redraft leagues. Uh, Nolan Jones is one they can they've trotted him out in the outfield uh, in different uh, alternate site games and such just to give him more familiarity there, more of a third baseman, but good outfielder. Is uh, good could potentially play a good outfield, and they've also got Tyler Freeman as well. So, um, if they're willing to burn up some service time for players that are more than ready, uh, they could actually make this lineup a bit uh, lengthier. They could, and I mean, right field looks like a really nice spot potentially for Nolan Jones um, mm-hmm. if they decide to keep Jose Ramirez around. Let's move over to the American League East, though. Talk some Yankees and some Blue Jays. With the Yankees, they bring back DJ LeMahieu. I think this was necessary if you're the New York Yankees for a number of reasons. One, he was your best hitter the last two years, um, taking nothing away from Aaron Judge when healthy and what Glaber Torres did in 2019. Also, fan favorite. Uh, but people look at the contract and say, it's not good. I beg to differ. You're talking about DJ LeMahieu, the only player in Major League Baseball history to win a batting title or in the dead ball era um, to since the dead ball era, I should say, to win a batting title in both the National League and the American League. But more importantly, you look at the overall contract and I think it was... I'm trying to remember exactly what it was for the breakdown purposes. Um, I think it was somewhere around five years and ninety million or something. Did, yeah, did, it was actually it was actually it was actually better than you thought. It was actually six years for ninety, so fifteen flat per year. Okay, yeah, so fifteen flat very per affordable. year. Very affordable, very affordable. But more importantly, 
LeMahieu, in my opinion, is worth $25 million this year and even next year based on what he's done the past two years. Would you agree with that? I would say if he can continue at least about 90%, so even saying he's going to come off of what he did but in 2019. But it's not about what he's going to do. He got paid based on what he did do. Based on what well, he I did think, do, is he not worth I, $25 million the next two years? I, I think that if you were to even look at his 2019, where he was a 327 batting average with a 518 slug with 26 bombs over 145 games, even if you were to take a little bit off of that, I still think he would be worth it. So, of course, I, I thought it was a very good deal. Okay, so let's say it's $25 million per year over the first two years, because those are going to be the two most important parts of that deal, considering he's already 32 years old. At that point, it becomes four years, $40 million. After that, I think he's worth $10 million at age 34 through 37. Um, is every year going to be this good? No. But for anyone who thinks the Yankees overpaid or that it shouldn't have been six years, you don't sign six, five or six year deals with guys in their thirties expecting them to be productive or as good at the end of those deals. It just doesn't happen. And Robinson Cano and Albert Pujols are the two most previously best examples to use. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at when teams were a bit more willing to open up their pockets, now it's only really a handful of teams. That's automatically going to make it. So if you're signing a player in this era, it's going to be a better deal because you have less competition. Like you said, the the first handful of years, you're looking to get uh, excess value. And then after that, you're expecting uh, the player to potentially drop off in hopes that he doesn't. And DJ LeMahieu is one of the most premium hitters in the game in terms of the contact that he makes, the amount of contact, the timeliness. Obviously, the timeliness aspect, you as a Yankees fan, you understand some people who are uh, more uh, sabermetrically driven might kind of roll their eyes at that kind of a comment. But if you watch much baseball, uh, you can sure, surely attest that DJ LeMahieu comes through when it's needed. Yeah, he's about as clutch as you get. Um, fantastic. So let's talk about Corey Kluber and Jameson Tyon joining the Yankees. Of course, that means that James Paxton... He's a free agent at this point. Masahiro Tanaka went back to Japan. Jay Happ did sign in Minnesota, but Happ wasn't very good with the Yankees. Paxton very up and down. And Tanaka, after the first few years, never really lived up to the hype aside from his relatively good playoff success. So although there's a lot of risk in these Kluber and Tyon moves, the trade, of course, for Tyon, the signing for Kluber, the upside, in my opinion, too good to pass up on, um, especially considering it's not like they're replacing guys who were doing all that well to begin with. Yeah, this was definitely a series of interesting moves. Um, I'm, I'm curious what you kind of think here with Tyon and Kluber. I mean, Tyon's only issue is health, in my opinion. If he can mm -hmm. pitch, he's going to be good. I'm not concerned, yes. about, concerned about that. Kluber, on the other hand, uh, obviously health is a factor. You have to consider it, especially with the amount of innings he ate between 2014 and 2018. The five seasons, um, he didn't throw under 200 innings in the regular season. And most of those times he went into the playoffs with Cleveland. Um, now, we won two Cy Young Awards during that time, finished top three two other times. Um, he was the best pitcher in the American League, arguably, during that stretch. But he is 35 years old. 
or going to be 35 years old in early April when the season begins. And you just don't know what you're going to get from him. Um, even if he is healthy, he might not be that premier pitcher anymore. Is it worth $11 million to find out? Yes. I just, I, I don't have as much faith in him. And I've even said it, I've gone on record saying, I think Tyon has a better season. I think uh, I think you could pretty much nailed it there as far as saying Tyone, you know, really doesn't have any performance questions other than the injuries. I mean, that's really the only question, really. If you look in, if you look at Tyone's career, um, he's actually been underneath one homers per nine on 17, 18, and 19. Obviously, has the Tommy John has the second, the scary second Tommy John under his belt. So there is questions as far as what kind of pitcher he's going to be. Every pitcher that comes back from Tommy John is different. They usually take some time to get back, but every once in a while, these guys are right back to normal. Um, And he's had a ton of time off. So that's actually one of the side benefits uh, for him since he's been sidelined so long. But um, Kluber, on the other hand, I just feel like the, uh, the mental aspect of what Kluber brings to the table and how good he was without a premium fastball. This guy was getting by just fooling hitters, kind of like a grinky style of a pitcher. And uh, I, I do feel really, really confident in Kluber. If he's healthy, obviously he's had a, a shoulder issue and uh, took a liner to the forearm or uh, to the leg, actually he broke his leg. So that was very unfortunate. Guys. That's yeah. not the type of injury I'm concerned about. Me either, but the the shoulder coming up and, really kind of one of these things where he's had, you know, 36 innings the past two years. It's, uh, it's kind of like, you know, going and finding a, a 1972, you know, Chevy Corvette and just trying to fire it up after it's been sitting for five, six years, you never know what you're going to get. It could work out great, but it could backfire. It could. Let's move over to the Toronto Blue Jays. Tyler Chatwood, I don't have much to say on that. Kirby Gates, I really like that move. A replacement for Ken Giles, essentially. Giles, of course, um, undergoing Tommy John surgery, not going to be part of the team. I think he was going to be a free agent anyways. Uh, Kirby Gates was a premier closer for the Padres for a couple years. Um, So I like the low-risk, high-reward move there. But the biggest moves really here for the Blue Jays is George Springer and Marcus Semien. And... You look at George Springer, a proven winner, World Series MVP, Silver Slugger Award, multiple-year time All-Star. He really just brings something to the Blue Jays' lineup that they really don't have. Um, He's a veteran because this team overall, offensively, very young, very inexperienced. Uh, I think it showed in the playoffs last year as well. Um, But I also think his presence is actually going to help bring those players along. Um, Similar to kind of what J.D. Martinez did for some of the younger hitters when he went to Boston. Um, That's the kind of impact I see for George Springer. And with Marcus Semyon, I don't think he's the type of player that we saw when he finished third in MVP voting in 2019. But I definitely think he's better than the player we saw in 2020. If he delivers what he's consistently done um, in 17 and 18, even, um, the fact that he's improved that defense, he's now 
can, could be even considered a premier defender at shortstop or I guess at second base for Toronto. Uh, I think that it will help. I also think the move from Oakland to Toronto is going to improve those power numbers. Is he going to get to 33 homers again, career high in, in 19? I don't think so, but I think you can expect a lot more than 10 to 15 that we saw in 17 and 18. He did hit 27 back in 16. So I think this guy is a 25 to 30 home run hitter in Toronto. I also think he's much better than the 223 type of hitter we saw last year in that short season. Overall, as much as you want the Blue Jays to add to their rotation, if you're a Blue Jays fan, this lineup went from being good to great with these moves. Yeah, it's uh, definitely a bit of a kind of a Dodgers crowded situation with all these hitters that they have. Um, It's going to be interesting to see uh, who gets shifted out of playing time? That's the biggest question I have here. And to me, it's got to be Grichik at this point. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you there. Um, You're not going to take out the Oscar Hernandez after the season he had. Lourdes Gurriel is secure in left field, in my opinion. Um, obviously, Vladdy or Telez is first base and or DH. Doesn't matter where they put Biggio, Semyon, or Bichette. They're going to make up third, short, and second. Catcher mm-hmm. is going to be Kirk and or Jansen. Um, mm-hmm. That leaves Grichik out to me. Um, I know you and I have talked about the fact that maybe they trade Kevin Biggio for starting pitching. Mm-hmm. And Possibly. that at least, you know, could potentially um, open up some, some space if they want to potentially move Guriel back to the infield or, of course, put Vladdy at third. Um, and open up the GH spot for a guy like Grichik or rotate that outfield in there. But to me, I wouldn't trade Calvin Biggio. I don't think they're going to get enough for him. Uh, They would want, and I think we haven't come close to seeing the best of him yet. But that, to me, is the only option. Trade Biggio or sit Grichik. Well, I think the other thing you could do is, obviously, most of these pieces are, I don't want to say not touchable, but you're not going to look to move them. Guriel is one of the guys that I think you possibly could move because you have more ready-made replacements in outfield with Grichik being, you know, long-term tied to the team uh, financially and Biggio having the plethora of flexibility and the elite on-base percentage. Plus he has such great chemistry with Bichette and Guerrero. It's going to really lead to um, an incredible, uh, possible locker room chemistry. So uh, even though obviously Guriel is a huge part of that mix, he also has an amazing contract. Only. By the way, amazing contract. Who's that? Lourdes Guriel, seven-year, twenty-two million dollars. He's making about three million a year through twenty twenty-three, and then he's arbitration eligible in twenty-four and a free agent in twenty-five. Um, I don't know how you trade a player of his caliber with his potential in his prime at that contract. Yeah, that's true. That definitely has to factor in. Well, perhaps they can just, uh, just ride it out with the depth as we, as you know, as a Yankees fan injuries strike and they can hit rapidly. So it never hurts to have extra pieces. Yeah. Grichik would just be an expensive bench bat. In my opinion, when you want that money to spend on starting pitching, potentially, uh, I think so, and I think yeah. that this situation is going to work itself out. Somebody, one or two of these guys will end up getting hurt, and they'll kind of rotate in and out, and that's kind of probably the way it'll go. It usually does, and of course, there are people who don't have as much faith in Teoscar Hernandez as others do. Some people think yep. that you know he's bound to um, regress quite a bit, and that would, of course, open up a 
possible um, battle between him and Grichik for that third outfield spot. Let's move over to the San Diego Padres, though. At this point, to me, they're the winners of the offseason. I don't think I'm being bold by saying that, but we have talked about a lot of great moves by other teams. This is the best of the best, in my opinion. You're getting you Darvish, you're getting Blake Snell, adding them to a team that was already very good, a team that arguably was the second best team in the National League last year behind their division rival Dodgers. You're adding a, a guy in you Darvish who's finished second in Cy Young Award voting twice. You're adding Blake Snell, who's won a Cy Young Award. And even with Clevenger being out, um, even with Lamette status up in the air, you still have a pretty good rotation there. Tons of good prospects, an amazing lineup, so much depth. And now you add two aces to this rotation. They might beat the Dodgers. Who? Yeah, it's going to be an absolute bloodbath out there with uh, the Padres and the Dodgers. The rotation, I felt like only even last year, there was a bit of a weakness. Yes, they had a bunch of names, but I didn't trust a lot of them. Um, and then this year, it's it's a struggle to get a lot of their talented players an opportunity, such as, you know, obviously a high-profile Mackenzie Gore, but even if you look at someone who's would be in a lot of rotations, Adrian Morhone. He's got some durability and workload concerns, but they've just got an absolute embarrassment of riches, including their bench bats, which we'll hit on. Yeah. Um, I I just look and they added Musgrove, which is mm-hmm. something obviously worth noting. He's going to be, what, their fourth or fifth starter. Um, and... Paddock moves from arguably being their number one starter when the season began to being their three um, or their four. Uh, Do we know this situation with Denelson Lamette? Is there. So with, 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 um, with Lamette, if you look at it like this, they did have two guys with elbow and and bicep issues down the stretch. They had Mike Clevenger and they had Denelson Lamette. Well, we know Clevenger's not pitching in 2021. Yes, I was just kind of saying that, you know, they they chose the absolute Tommy John surgery with Clevenger and with Lamette. They said, you're good to go after they had both visited with Dr. James Andrews. So I personally firmly believe that they're simply delaying the inevitable, but perhaps it is a Tanaka situation where he just, you know, continues to pitch healthily despite many people thinking that's not going to be the case. and uh, The problem I see there, Lucas, is that they're very different pitchers. Tanaka was a finesse guy, and yes. Lamette throws gas. Um, and and Lamette's velocity increased, too, potentially adding more strain to his arm and elbow. Yeah. Well, if Lamette is in the rotation, you're looking at Darvish, Snell, Lamette, Paddock, Musgrove. If Lamette is not in the rotation, you're looking at Darvish, Snell, Paddock, Musgrove, and then one of Morhan or Mackenzie Gore. Um, I know Ryan Weathers is a guy that they've looked at as well. I don't see him having an inside edge over Morhan or Mackenzie Gore, but um, worth you know throwing his name out there. Um, in terms of the bats in San Diego, I know you wanted to hit on some of them. So what do you got for me? Um, they have a similar problem to the Blue Jays, where these teams that are willing to spend money and willing to make trades from their prospect capital to add to the major league roster. Uh, they've got an embarrassment of riches. Um, it'll be interesting to see how the playing time shakes out, but I personally think they're going to be 
a team that heavily platoons, rotates, brings guys in and out of the bench, whether it's a Jake Cronenworth, a Haas Young Kim, or even a Jerkson Profar, who they just inked to a three-year, $21 million, uh, relatively reasonable deal. Uh, so I think that this team is going to have a lot of versatile assets and pieces like you see the Dodgers do. And yeah, it'll be interesting. Well, Profar is interesting because Profar is interesting because he can play third, second, first, left, arguably could play shortstop. What he came up as. I don't think they'd ever use him there um, with the other players they have, uh, but he can play all over the place. Cronenworth, Probably will get some opportunity in the outfield. Tommy Pham and Will Myers are no sure things to stay healthy. So yes. that is where Profar and Cronenworth could get the majority of their playing time. Potentially, something happens to those guys. Obviously, Cronenworth could battle at second base with the... Uh, remind me what, what his name is. I'm blanking on it. Their new second baseman, Padres. Uh, Haseon Kim. Yes. So... Uh, Obviously, Cronenworth is going to battle there. Um, Eric Hosmer, he's up there at age. Maybe he goes down with an injury. Profar gets time at first. I know he did that back in his Texas days. So there's opportunity for both these guys. just a matter of how much of it they're going to get. But I do want to talk about the Chicago White Sox and their addition of Liam Hendricks. Um, I know you are a fan of Hendricks. I know from a fancy baseball perspective, we looked at him as probably top two or three in our draft and holds. Um, Do you think this was a very good move by the White Sox? Do you think it was an amazing move by the White Sox? Or do you think they might have been okay with what they already had? I think for a team that has a lot of young position players and not a ton of money uh, already spent, I think that bolstering an already great bullpen and bringing in the best reliever on the market, I think that that's only going to help kind of like Kansas City did about five plus years ago, as well as your New York Yankees. So this was an absolute A-plus move, very interesting contract structure for Hendricks. And I just think that it, it just kind of put the head onto the dragon of an already extremely great bullpen. Yeah, they have a lot of young, explosive arms in that bullpen for sure. Uh, but what Hendricks has done the past two years has been incredible. 1.80, 1.78 in 110 total innings. Um, 13.1K per nine. Very good walk rate. Pretty much doesn't give up home runs. Um, obviously, you know, you can look at ballpark factors and figure it's going to be a bit of a difference going from Oakland to Chicago. Um, but overall, he's not throwing... 175 innings where that really could show itself. Um, And half of those innings aren't even going to be in Chicago necessarily. So I think that's good. I also think he gets weaker opponents in Cleveland and KC and Detroit. Um, Although I did just go on and get all my soapbox and talk about how good I think the Indians or Cleveland lineup is nowadays. Uh, I didn't know if we were going to have time to talk about Michael Brantley going back to Houston or originally going to Toronto and then not going to Toronto and resigning in Houston. Um, what does that mean, you think, for Brantley and for Houston, who really was looking like they were going to be in trouble after losing potentially Springer and Brantley? At least they got one of them back. I think this is absolutely huge for Houston. 
Um, sure, there's a lot of outfielders available that you can get for not a lot of monies, but Brantley is definitely a cut above almost all the outfielders they could have gotten. There's a great familiarity there. Uh, there's a great team chemistry uh, that he has with these guys, considering the fact that playing with Houston's brought out the best he's ever had in his career outside of 2014, uh, when he had a great 2023 season with a 327 batting average and borderline triple-digit runs and ribbies, 94-97 uh, runs and ribbies. So, you know, obviously he's, he feels great there. He wants to uh, to continue to play there, and I think that for fantasy, I think you could easily see Brantley rise up one to two rounds um, and maybe even more in some drafts because there's that great security. So it was a great move. Yeah, and being the left-handed hitter that he is, aside from Jordan Alvarez – um, who we don't know what his status is going to be. He's going to hit in a prime spot in the lineup. In fact, he actually has a chance to hit in a more prime spot now um, because you're going to have to likely move guys like Cray and Altuve up a little bit after Springer is gone. Um, I mean, I'm not sure how their lineup is going to look exactly, but Brantley might be hitting third versus fifth or second versus whatever it might be. Um, he might get more of an opportunity at this point. This is a guy, of course, that hit 311 in his first year, 300 last year, 372 OBP, 364 OBP. He gets on base. He drives and runs. He pretty much does absolutely everything you would want. Um, doesn't steal bases anymore like he did earlier in his Cleveland days, but that's mm-hmm. not what they signed him for. Um, personally, I think he's a more consistent hitter than that of George Springer. Um, I think that this is actually a better move for the Houston Astros in a lot of ways. One, I think Branley's production will be as good, if not better, um, overall. Obviously not in the home run department, but everywhere else. And it also costs them a lot less money. Uh, money they're going to need because they're probably either going to need to make some moves in season or they're going to need to try and lock up some of their other uh, players if they want to try and keep a good core together. So that is something think that going with Brantley does for them over going with Springer. Yeah, Brantley is uh is one of those guys that you should just draft on your team. I don't really care the structure that you have. The only downside that you get from Brantley, obviously you're not going to get any steals, that's well established, but he might not even hit you 20 homers. That that kind of stings a little bit, but the fact that he's going to absolutely give you the 300 plus batting average and he's going to give you mid-80s runs in RBIs with a chance for more if he's hitting really high in the lineup. I just I don't understand why this guy isn't drafted higher, Lou. I do not get it. I think he'll probably go up now, probably has gone up since. I yeah. haven't done a draft since he signed. Um, I got him, I think, in both of my draft and holds that I've done so far as my outfield three. <laughs> because um, of where he was going without being signed anywhere. I think now that he's on a team, going back to a team that he's already been on and had success with, that probably bumps him up a little bit. But you're absolutely right. Uh, there's a lot of guys that don't steal bags and who aren't as consistent as Michael Brantley. So that's what I have there. Before we head out here, though, and finish up part one of the offseason signing and trades, do you agree that the Padres are the team that has won the offseason so far, but is it necessarily the team that it's going to have the biggest impact? Like, Are their moves going to have the biggest impact, or do you see it being somebody else? Which team has made the moves that will have, I guess, the biggest impact on their 2021 season? Not going forward, just for 2021. Mm. <laughs> I, uh, I, 
I thought you were asking as far as like which player had the biggest value rise, and we can talk about that as well. But I absolutely agree. The Padres, they did not even have to fork over their premium assets in terms of the prospects. So you factor in the fact that all they had to do was just move a lot of their depth prospects, and they were able to get two, you know, one ace pitcher in Darvish, one potential borderline ace in Snell when he's humming, add in a Musgrove who could absolutely skyrocket outside of Pittsburgh. And they had the best uh, immediate international prospect signing of Kim. Unbelievable offseason. This is probably one of the best I've seen in many years. Yeah, they're definitely the winners. After them, do you like the Mets? Do you think the Mets 2021 look a lot better? Do you like their chances? As tough as that division is, the Phillies are still going to be competitive. Nationals rebooted. We'll talk about them on our next episode. Braves are still the Braves. Um, Do you think the Yankees? Do you think the Jays? Um, is it the small moves by the White Sox? I mean, of all these teams, is it is it Cleveland with Rosario, Jimenez, Green, and Eddie Rosario? I mean, all these teams, in my opinion, have improved aside from San Diego because they were the easy choice. Who is the team that's going to benefit most in 2021? So I think, I think a team like the Indians for – I'm not saying they did the best. I just kind of wanted to mention what they did, I thought. I thought as far as a team that was really looking from the owner's perspective, unfortunately, to just save a bunch of money, their team did not get that much worse than they were able to save money. Yes, they cost themselves a premium franchise superstar, but their team's win-loss record for the next year to maybe year or two, we'll see how it goes. It's been relatively the same. So, if you Yeah, want to they say also that, got rid of a guy who they weren't going to be bringing back after 2021. There was no way they were going to sign Lindor. So... It's almost, to me, it is a win for them regardless because at least they got a bunch for him rather than just letting him go for nothing besides a draft pick. That's true. My only beef with that is is that I just feel like this team could have easily brought him back. If, if he would have chose to, they could have offered him a huge amount. I think he would have most likely taken it if he felt like it was a great amount and kept his career going there. But it seems clear that the ownership – just does not want to spend that money. So that's a little frustrating, but yeah, they're it's, win-loss it's, it's frustrating even when you're a team like the Red Sox and you have money to spend, you don't spend it on True. a guy like Mookie Betts. Uh, you know, that, that that happens. Really, the only, the only team out there right now that I see not letting any of their superstars go is the Dodgers. Even the Yankees are stupid enough to let guys go because Hal Steinbrenner cares more about making money than winning championships, unlike his father. Um, the Dodgers are the only team to me that I could not see them ever letting a superstar caliber player um, walk out of the organization. But that was Lucas. I'm Lou. Thanks for tuning in today. Find our shows on demand at the Baseball 365 page. Big shout out to them. Of course, our partners, iLogic Media, Draft for Upside, Fancy Sports Blueprint, Sports Crew Radio Network, iTunes, and Spotify. And also go check out our new Facebook page, the Lucas Baseball Facebook page. We post all of our shows there as well. Thanks for tuning in, folks. We'll catch you next time for part two.